Reading from the prophet Isaiah. For I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. One who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. Like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They shall be offspring, blessed by the Lord and of their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. And they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Word of the Lord. I'm a teacher. My tools are metaphor, analogy, recognition of relationship. See, my job requires me to take things that people don't already know or sometimes only think they don't know and, and give them something familiar to hang their thoughts on. You can understand this because it's, it's just the same thing as when we talked about that, only with a few more wrinkles that I'll explain along the way. Right? My inclination, if I'm going to explain something, is to tell a story, most likely from my own past, because stories are, are, are kind of like meta-metaphors. They, they give us access to things that we can understand by offering recognizable reference points in narrative form. We give parents a hard time about that, don't we? Oh, sure, Dad. Of course you had to ford a river and battle the demigorgon and the upside down every day just to get to fifth grade. Please, go back to watching the Golf Channel and leave reality to the rest of us. Or, or we, we know we have it easy. We never had to chop a cord of wood before lunch or repair a faulty fan belt with dental floss and some WD-40? Or, oh, please, do tell us 
about how you used to make your own clothes as a child out of old bits of lint and discarded bourbon boxes from the liquor store. <laughs> but our stories are an important part not only of who we are, but of how we see the world. Uh, our ability to connect the past to the present helps us learn and, and, and gives us confidence that if we've survived the past, maybe we can keep going. These stories keep hope alive that we'll find a future that we can endure again. See, storytelling is an eminently human practice. We're always sort of sifting through the past, trying to make some sense of the present, trying to get a line on the future. I mean, you know how it works, right? It's simple, really. Uh, try this one on. The Iraq War was this generation's Vietnam. Or, we haven't seen inflation like that since Jimmy Carter was president. Snow in November is like bolting upright in bed when you suddenly remember the root canal you scheduled last month and then promptly forgot about until now. We like to think of the past as, as connected to the future by a common plot. This impulse is generally a, a good one. I mean, we can understand a great deal of what the world is like by referring to the way the world used to be. But what the past is... is often a mystery. It's... What if it's discontinuous with the future? What, well, what if the world we want isn't like any world for which we already have a story? What happens then? That's an especially important question just now, isn't it? I mean, how do we tell the story of a world for which our words are inadequate? Like, how, do you, how do you describe to somebody what a grape tastes like? What grammar is robust enough to order the necessary words to, to communicate the disappointment of a broken heart, of a broken promise? How, how do you put words into words what, what it feels like to kiss the face of the child you thought you'd never see, or the child you thought you'd never see again? See, this is the problem that Isaiah's got. In our passage for today, God lays out a brand new future that just completely explodes our understanding of what the world should look like. And we don't really have anywhere to look over our shoulders for a referent. But the stuff in the past is past. Isn't it going back? In fact, God says, I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? How do you describe a world you've never seen before? How do you begin to put words to a reality, the beauty of which is more than can be contained by the words available to us? I had a dream once. 
I dreamt I was in church. Light pouring in through glass. And the sanctuary was hazy, as in dreams things tend to be. And I was on my way to the pulpit. Now, this is not one of my regular sort of Saturday night fever dreams where I can't find my sermon. In this dream, I began to, dis- to ascend the steps to the chancel when somebody came to me. Now, now this someone was sort of just outside the reaches of my peripheral vision. So I'm not sure who it was, although in retrospect, I have a hunch. The voice came to me in my dream and said, Derek, the church needs a new minister. What? What? See, I, this is not something that I really wanted to hear. I, I thought, look, I mean, I've worked hard. I love my I don't want to leave. I don't want to go someplace else so a new minister can come in. And the voice said, the church needs a new minister. I said, well, but, 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 but we already have people doing ministry. And the voice said, growing even more calm. The church needs a new minister. It needs a minister of poetry. Now, I argued with the voice that the church really had more important business than poetry. I mean, we got youth to teach, disciples to make, prayers to pray, budgets to budget, sermons to sermonize. We have mouths to feed, people to clothe. We, we had, at least in my mind, much bigger fish to fry. Poetry is nice, but come on. I mean, the reign of God will not be ushered in by a poet, right? And the voice insisted, the church needs a new minister, a minister of poetry. And then, as in dreams, it so often happens, I suddenly got it. Something clicked. I, I, I caught a glimpse of that world. And, and, and all of a sudden, for whatever odd reason, things like that happen in dreams, a minister of poetry made all the sense in the world to me. Now, I remember smiling when I woke up, smiling both because it was apparently not my job that the voice was after, but, but, but also because the whole idea made such outlandish, preposterous sense. See, the thought had never occurred to me before. In, in my dream, I was certain that the idea probably never occurred to anybody before. I thought, look, we look for ministers of education, ministers of youth, the church is constantly trying to find music ministers. We hire ministers of counseling and evangelism and shepherding, pastoral care. We even hire ministers of Christian finance, whatever that is. But it's never occurred to me before, and it, it, my mind, I thought it probably hadn't occurred to the church that perhaps what we need most is a minister of poetry.
done what I had to Remember the smile that thought brought to my face. And as I was lying there, the, 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 the line sort of popped into my head from Walt Whitman's famous poem, Passage to India. After the seas are all crossed, as they seem already crossed, after the great captains and engineers have accomplished their work, after the noble inventors, after the scientists, the chemists, the geologists, the ethnologists, finally, finally, shall come the poet worthy of that name. The true child of God shall come singing God's songs. Finally comes the poet. Now that's a title of a book on preaching by Walter Brueggemann some years back. He argued in this book that, that, that the world has been sort of flattened and reduced in, in need of a, a poets to sing it back to life. That is to say, the world that we inhabit is a, a kind of a prosaic world, a world written in the prose of newscasts and end-user license agreements, a world which is often devoid of dreams and vision and creativity. In other words, a world without poetry. See, it's a world that insists on realism and, and, and shuns imagination. It's a, it's a world that's settled on the inevitability of violence, pride, and self-absorption. A world that takes for granted that there will always be weeping and infants who live but a few days. A world that assumes that people die young and children are born for calamity. It's a world where conventional wisdom tells us wolves do not eat breakfast with lambs. A world where people live with the lingering fear that their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, their gender expression, that their immigration status or their disability makes them vulnerable to the, ca the caprice of those in power, a, a target for bigots and cowards. Now, I, I think Brueggemann was right. The church desperately needs someone whose job it is to find the terrible and beautiful words to speak of a new heaven and a new earth, to, to sing a new reality into existence. What the church needs as it finds itself situated in a lifeless world of prose is a poet, or as they were called in the Bible, a prophet. Someone who can navigate where there is no map. Someone who can tune out the noise and articulate what God's future must look like for all God's children. See, and that's just it, isn't it? Some things are both too terrible and too beautiful not to be put into words. But it's so hard. Our words seem so weak, but we have to try. And that's where poets and prophets come in. The church, to the extent that it has promoted a version of the gospel concerned primarily only with getting me into heaven, has been complicit in allowing Christians to get comfortable with the idea that poverty and xenophobia, racism, sexism, homophobia aren't 
a primary matter of concern when it comes to living like Jesus, that the cries of our sisters and brothers are of interest only after we've secured our own heavenly guest passes. In, in our flattened world, all that stuff happens to other people who, although we may not make them targets of our own hostility, qualify as perfect candidates for our indifference. Too often, the church's cries about being realistic require it to be concerned with bigger things. Bigger things than the scattered cries of a marginalized group of other people. In this case, however, let's be realistic really means something like, let's don't rock the boat. Let's do things that don't cost us very much and don't make people really mad at us for doing them. Just keep quiet. Swallow your personal hurt for the good of the whole. But see, Isaiah sees something different. He sees a different world. The problem he finds is helping everybody else to see it. And that makes sense. I mean, what if you've spent the last 50 plus years sitting abandoned and forgotten in a foreign land, a million miles from anywhere that looks like home? I mean, what if you, when you looked out your front window, could see only unfamiliar and frightening landscape of the wilderness that threatened to overwhelm you, to swallow you up, how do you put that into words? Or what if after you get home, all you see is the wasteland that your home has become in your absence? All the abandoned buildings and old tires strewn about the countryside. What if all you see when you look out the front window of your childhood home is a darkened landscape that holds only the failures the past. What do, you, what, what do you do in a world like that? How do you find the strength to go on? The strength to hold the hands and bear the burdens of those convinced that they can't even make it one more day in a world that seems to have no place in it for them. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you find the resources you need to take one more step? In the <clears throat> Shawshank Redemption, one of my favorite movies, it's set in Shawshank State Penitentiary. And Andy Dufresne is the prison librarian, main character. And one day he gets a call to come down to the guardhouse to pick up a package. It's boxes of books and records for the prison library that he's been writing a letter every week for six years to obtain. Finally, they come. He's taken, so taken by the moment that he, he, he goes back to the library. He winds up locking the security guard in the bathroom. And then he goes into the command center with a record player locks himself inside and begins to play an aria from The Marriage of Figaro. 
over the loudspeaker for all the prison to hear. As the prisoners are out in the yard for exercise, some of them in the shop working, this, this, this beautiful music begins to play, and everyone stops to listen. Eventually, of course, the guards break down the door and they throw Andy Dufresne in the hole for his stunt. But Morgan Freeman's character observes, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are better left unsaid. I like to think they were talking about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. And that's just it. What if, what if our job is to carve out new world to sing hope into a gray place where nobody dares to dream? What if for a world satisfied with things it already takes for granted, that white men should always occupy the top of the food chain, and that a person's money or power ought to be the measure of their worth? What if our job as God's children is to unleash the poetry about a new heaven and a new earth, a place where preposterous, unthinkable things are possible? A place where there are no more cries of distress, where the work of our hands is not claimed by someone else for their profit. A place where children are blessed and protected, where the wolf poses no threat to the lamb, where people live without fear that those in power can come along and steal their security or their dignity or their bodies. I like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. And for my part, I like to think Isaiah's singing a song about new day, a new world where the hope of God's people will be set free by the power of God's saving hand, where those who've been cast aside, abandoned, othered, left to die alone with no one to speak terrible and beautiful words over their lifeless bodies will come to Zion singing, and they shall not hurt on all my holy mountain. In a gray place where hopelessness seems to rule the day, in a flattened and dry land where walls are built and people are cast aside, and where even in church we often can't see our way to welcome one another, we wonder how our perseverance in the struggle to follow Jesus makes any difference at all. But standing on, on tiptoes, peering with the eyes of hope into the shadows, awaiting a word from God about the dream of our deliverance from the wilderness, we hear, that 
after the seas are all crossed, as they seem already crossed, after the, the great captains and engineers have accomplished their work, after the noble inventors, after the scientists, the chemists, the geologists, ethnologists, finally shall come the poet, worthy of that name, the true child of God shall come singing God's songs. <laughs> I know, but what if it's only just a dream? Only a dream. Only a dream. In the world we live in, where people eat the bread of tears and drink from the wells poisoned by the blood of the powerless and forgotten, a new dream might just be the best thing that ever happened to us. What do you say we find out?